I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage uh, again for another week. I'm, of course, from the ANU's School of Politics and International Relations and the Australian Studies Institute, and I'm joined, as usual, by Dr Maria Taflaga, who's also from the School of Politics and International Relations here at ANU. Hi there, Maria. Hello, Mark. How are you? I'm I'm going very well. Uh, in fact, I've just been watching, uh, and we'll talk about this in, in a moment, I've just been watching Peter Dutton announce a reshuffle in which Karen Andrews, the former Home Affairs Minister, has stepped down from the front bench and will be leaving Parliament at the next election, presumably not by a by-election because they don't tend to go all that well at the moment. And Jacinta Namagimpa-Price has been selected for the position of Indigenous Affairs spokesperson, so that's... Uh, that's quite interesting in terms of the direct head-to-head matchup that she want to have with Linda Burney and the, the context of the very big issue this country is confronting this year, The Voice, um, and some other, you know, there's been some other changes as well. So we, we can talk about that in a moment because last week on this podcast, we talked with Cos Samaras, a Labor-aligned researcher and campaign advisor, and we were really talking about changes, demographic changes in the, in the electorate, baby boomers and Gen Xs, uh, shuffling off, perhaps not the Gen uh, Xs just yet, but, um, uh, you know, certainly contracting as a as a group over time uh, and being replaced by millennials and, and Gen Zs and, um, and how that's actually affecting attitudes in the electorate and how the parties are responding to that. And, of course, that all came off the back of the Aston by-election, which was a historic, um, a very historic uh, result, really, because uh, we hadn't seen a party lose a by-election to a government uh, in over 100 years, and then suddenly it happened. So we're going to stay with that theme this week uh, and look at the challenge for the Liberal Party from inside the Liberal Party, which is a, you know, a very appropriate thing to do. And our very distinguished guest to do that with is Trent Zimmerman, former MP for North Sydney, a leading moderate, and um, as you'll hear, someone with a fantastic broadcast voice. Trent Zimmerman, welcome to Democracy Sausage. Thanks for having me, Mark and Maria. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, it's really good to talk to you. Of course, you went out of the parliament at the last election, swept away by you know what's been described as the kind of teal wave, You know that, that election where a number of, I suppose what you'd call urban, inner urban kind of liberal jewels were um, surrendered to these, these independent candidates. And uh, so you have a pretty unique and uh, I suppose a pretty engaged 
perspective on um, on what's going on in the electorate and you know how that's changing the prospects for the Liberal Party. We know Peter Dutton at the last, uh, just after the last election, when he took over as leader, rather curiously, in my view, and I want to get your thoughts on this, sort of stated right up front, apart from not saying anything about having heard the electorate's message or anything else at, uh, in in his um, first press conference, he he rather defiantly said that we, you know. We, I'm paraphrasing him here, of course, but along the lines of, you know, we're not going to be seeking to, you know, get these teal seats back. We're going to uh, seek to build the Liberal Party's brand in the suburbs rather than the urban seats in the sort of outer fringes and and or the outer areas of the cities and regions, uh, rather than uh, trying to uh, go for these inner urban seats, seats like yours and Josh Frydenberg's and and a number of others, Tim Wilson's. What's your what's your perspective on that argument, given what happened in Aston? Well, I, I don't think the maths stack up uh, for that politically. And if you look at uh, where uh, we need to and can win seats, then it's winning back some of those seats that we lost to Tealy Dependents, but also worth noting that we lost to, to Labor in so seats like Higgins and mm. Boothby as well. So, uh, so it's not just a, a Teal battle, but there has always been this narrative from some elements of the party and the and the media that there is this pot of political gold at the end of the rainbow in, in outer metropolitan areas, in, in my case in Sydney and Western Sydney, uh, which will replace those traditional Liberal seats that we have seemed to have lost uh, uh, or we did lose at the last election. And I just don't think that stacks up because uh, if you look at uh, through any realistic lens, if you look at, for example, Western Sydney, which I know a bit better than other capital cities, uh, there really aren't that many seats that you'd identify as realistic prospects. Uh, yes, uh, in, in landslide elections, there are uh, Western Sydney seats that we've held before that we don't hold today, like Parramatta or, or MacArthur or Macquarie, um, or uh, even uh, um, a Greenway when it had different political boundaries. But, uh, but if you look at the recent trends in those seats, uh, it hasn't really provided any comfort uh, to the view that their seats that really should be on our short list or our key seats list, as we, we call it internally, for us to win. Uh, and that's why I think that any strategy that thinks that winning back seats like that, which I held, um, isn't central uh, to what we need to do to return to government is, is one that will disappoint in the end. Can I ask, Trent, I mean, I mean, yeah, you make a very good point. And um, I know that that's a line that's been sort of pushed inside the party since like the late 70s. Um, so it's had a lot of time in the field. But I guess I'd want to know a bit more about the sort of resource challenge, you know. I mean, seats like yours were, were very important, not only for representing a certain class of people, but also, I understand, for fundraising purposes. What are the implications for seeding this ground? Well, it's certainly true that uh, some of these seats, which uh, are home to some of Australia's most high net worth individuals, were a considerable source and um, centre of fundraising activity uh, for the party. And uh, the fundraising both supported local campaigns, but also uh, was effectively redistributed to support campaigns elsewhere that weren't as, as fundraising rich, if I can put it that way. Uh, and the impact of what we've seen happen is is both fundraising, but also just as importantly, manpower. Uh, there were days when Liberal Party branches in a, a seat like North Sydney, uh, our members would be supporting the local campaign, but also dispatched to support marginal seat campaigns elsewhere in the state and the city. And uh, when you're um, when you've got the luxury of doing that, that's fine. But the current political dynamic, of course, is that uh, you are seeing effectively us having to bunker down in those seats to protect them. Uh, we failed, obviously, at the last election. But but moving forward, as we try to reclaim those seats, it means that 
resources that wouldn't have been spent in those seats, uh, manpower that wasn't used in those seats, uh, will now be dedicated to trying to re-win, re-win seats that we lost. In, in your seat, what, what were the issues uh, in North Sydney? Uh, I assume that a lot of these issues are quite common across, uh, across a number of these electorates, but what, what did you see as the issues on which you, your party was rejected at the 2022 election? Uh, look, it's always hard to define because every voter has their own shopping basket yes. of issues that they walk into a polling booth with, but there were clearly themes and, uh, and uh, there was dissatisfaction with the Liberal Party leadership. There's no question about that. Uh, it was the most common refrain that I received but, um, uh, as I campaigned and on polling booths. Uh, and so um, there was a, a fair amount of personalised anger, I think, towards Scott, Prime Minister, Scott Morrison as Prime Minister. Um, but that reflected not just concerns about his own personal style, it reflected a view that he wasn't representing them on some key political issues. And uh, chief amongst those in an electorate like North Sydney was our response to climate change, um, issues like how we manage integrity, and the Integrity Commission, I think, played a significant role in that respect in our failure to implement one. Um, and there are also unique issues which uh, are quite interesting to explore and quite difficult for the party. And chief amongst those was, uh, I think, the deterioration of our support in the Australian Chinese community, uh, which had traditionally in recent decades been reasonably strong for the Liberal Party. And it affected seats like mine, which includes a large part of Chatswood, which is a a major centre for Chinese Australians, but other seats around the country, not not just the the teal seats, if I can put it that way, but uh, seats like Reid and Benelong uh, and obviously Chisholm, uh, which uh, which were profoundly impacted, I think, by the loss of support of Chinese Australians. And that's obviously a whole different subject matter of its own, which I'm happy to explore with you. Well, let's just stay with that for a moment, because if we think back to Benelong when Maxine McHugh won that seat in 2007, wasn't it? Um, she unseated John Howard at that, at that moment mm. when the Howard government went out of existence as well. And that was said to have been on the back of at least pretty good performance by Labor, by McHugh herself as a candidate in the Chinese community there. And you mentioned the seat of Chisholm, where uh, there, there was a Chinese-Australian member of parliament. Uh, and it, it's interesting that that it, it does seem that the sort of um, sabre-rattling or tough talk or however you want to describe it uh, that was going on under the Morrison government really played poorly with the Chinese community. But it suggests that that community is quite, quite kind of volatile, quite fungible in the sense that, that you, you, you know you can speak to it if you get your messaging right. Look, I think that's right. And it's a part of the Australian society which is probably more squarely focused on economic aspiration and opportunity. And uh, traditionally, the Liberal Party's message in that regard has, uh, has attracted support from the Chinese Australian community. But um, it's actually, I think, a little bit uh, of a dilemma for not just us, but um, but frankly, even the current government as we... Uh, see tensions rise in in the um, in the Pacific, and it's it's quite an interesting phenomenon because the Chinese Australian community largely came here for better economic opportunities, uh, obviously better lifestyle and the freedoms that Australia affords its citizens. But by the same token, Chinese Australians are very proud of their heritage. They're very proud of being part of a culture which uh, really um, led global civilization for so many hundreds and hundreds of years, and, and rightly so. Uh, the challenge, I think, politically is, is that sometimes when uh, 
a political party or its political leadership is seen to be uh, hostile towards the leadership of China, uh, it translates to a perception that we're hostile towards Chinese values, Chinese heritage, uh, and a broader picture that just rather than the contemporary leadership. And that, I think, therefore means that language is really important. Uh, calling out racism is really important. Uh, having a nuanced presentation of those arguments is, is vital. And it is tricky because, frankly, the, the stand that, that our government took in relation to what I perceive to be a changing Chinese approach from its leadership I think was the right one. Uh, we have seen China change in its approach to world affairs in quite an aggressive and confrontational way, uh, which has only been walked back in the last 12 months as I think that they, they realised that that was causing problems for them economically. Um, but I, I just don't think we got the language right as we presented our arguments in relation to that. Uh, and it was overlaid with a couple of incidents which actually ricocheted around the Chinese-Australian community in a way that I don't think that we probably perceive strongly enough. So, for example... Uh, something that came up time and time again with me was uh, when uh, former Senator Erica Betts took on two Chinese witnesses before a Senate committee hearing and, and really questioned their loyalty to Australia and their patriotism in, in quite an aggressive and an unpleasant way. And that should have been called out strongly and immediately, and at the time it wasn't. So, uh, so small things like, relatively small things like that create a perception of, of where the the party itself stands. Uh, in contrast, I think Labor at the moment, even though fundamentally their approach to China, China on security issues, as reflected in the AUKUS decision, hasn't changed, uh, there has been, a, a, I think, a more significant nuance in language, which uh, means that I think that support from for Labor in the Chinese Australian community will will be will be higher than traditionally at the moment. So, so we have to we have to think about those issues. Is that what happens uh, toward the end of a government, that uh, you get this kind of almost loss of perspective after you've been there for a while? There seemed to be, I was watching this in real time as many people were, and there seemed to be almost like a rhetorical race to see who could be, you know, the toughest in, in their sort of China messaging, anti-China messaging. It was, it was partly to presumably position Labor in opposition as not being as hairy-chested on these questions. Uh, and so you had people like James Patterson, who's just been promoted today to the to the uh, front bench, um, Andrew Hastie, uh, Dutton himself talking about, you know, drums of war. Uh, there were comments from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, as well. There was a, there was a, there was this kind of auction, uh, really, of tough talk. And there was pretty tough and, and, and adolescent sort of language coming from uh, the other side of uh, the Pacific, you know, from the, from China as well. But I, I wonder if it's the kind of, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but the kind of dysfunction that creeps into governments after as they get a bit older and, um, and, and perhaps uh, are starting to get a bit desperate as well. Look, I, I think it's a broader problem sometimes with political discussion uh, in Australia and you get uh, uh, extreme language used on both sides. Um, uh, and... Uh, and I think it is it is increasingly failing, I think, to cut through in terms of the Australian population. That it's not very sophisticated and it has consequences. It has consequences for our support amongst the key demographic, as we saw. And and the challenge is, is that the approach of the Morrison government and, and, and frankly, Turnbull before him as well in relation to China was, I think, genuinely founded in a, in a change of approach that we saw from the Chinese leadership uh, and justified. I think that we have seen a more 
aggressive China on the world stage. We've seen um, it more aggressive in relation to its uh, activities in democracies like Australia, including amongst its uh, diaspora. Uh, and so responding to that was a necessity. Uh, and I also think that there is an important role for government in uh, making uh in not not sounding the alarm bells, but being honest with the Australian community about where some of those tensions stand. But within that, I come back to the central point that you have to prosecute those arguments in a way that is more sophisticated, that is more nuanced, uh, that doesn't leave a section of the Australian community feeling like they themselves are under attack. Uh, and that was the, the missing link in all of that picture. I mean, yeah, there's lots of things going on there. I mean, I think you're right, Trent, that it is quite complicated. If we if we look at the sort of demographic characteristics of Chinese migrants compared to other migrant waves uh, that are currently underway or historically, you know, they, they're more highly educated. They have, you're right, they have different kinds of aspirations. And so that's why I think the Liberal Party has been very successful in recruiting them to their vision of, of the good life. But, you know, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Trent. When these sort of uh, attacks, that all these rhetorical flourishes that happen are uh, charged with this sort of emotional dimension, it's really dangerous for political parties because it's very likely that these voters actually never forget this. And when they're talking to their grandchildren in 50 years' time, they'll be railing about this issue, right? And I witnessed this with my, with my own parents and in my own kind of migrant community. And I would say that Labor is, I think, a little bit more skilled at talking around questions of multiculturalism than, than the coalition, just in the way that the coalition is far more skilled at talking about religion and faith than, than Labor is. So there's just more tools there in their ability to communicate to these sort of really emotional things that can for certain classes of voters just never really wash out of the system? Look, I'm not quite sure how long-lasting they are because I think, as Mark mentioned before, part of the reasons we lost Ben along was because of perceptions about uh, John Howard that dated, and this was, I suppose, quite long-lasting in John Howard's case, um, dating back to comments that he made, I think, when he was leader of the opposition. Um, Which was 88, but, I think, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. right. But we regained Ben along pretty quickly uh, and we regained it and, and John Alexander had very strong support from his local Chinese community and, and for that matter, the Korean community. Um, but so I suppose that was an example of it enduring for a while, but it doesn't necessarily endure forever. But I think the other the, the, the other fact, which I think is also an overlay of this, uh, is that I think that there was um, a COVID impact as well, because uh, it, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, I think there's... Chinese Australian community was subject to some pretty uh, awful direct but also indirect attacks because of the origins of COVID in China. Uh, and so there was a, a broader sense of being um, under assault and that fed into the, the narrative as well. Let's take a very quick break there and be back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. 
Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage from ANU. We're talking with Trent Zimmerman, uh, former member for North Sydney in the federal parliament, a very prominent moderate in the Liberal Party, and we're talking about really where the Liberal Party is at the moment. Um, fascinating kind of historical juncture, I guess, uh, because according to some of the uh, analyses we're seeing around, the demographics are shifting away from the Liberal Party. Trent, do you see that issue itself as as a big challenge that 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 in fact the base of the liberal party is dwindling that is the traditional base you know the people who've uh, got older and uh, tended to become more conservative and so forth uh, the baby boomers is there a structural problem now that the liberal party faces that it's going to really need to have to sort of um, find ways of engaging with newer and younger voters Yes, uh, fundamentally, that's, I think, the greatest challenge the party has today. And uh, I think that uh, our core vote has uh, become solidified in, in those over, over 50. Uh, but what we're seeing is, uh, is increasingly um, different parts of society. I'd include uh, many women in that, but particularly younger voters not uh, joining the Liberal Party, um, either membership-wise or politically, in terms of their voting intentions. And uh, that is fundamentally a problem. I think once upon a time, there was a perception that people were more likely to vote for a centre-left party in their teens and 20s, but as they grew older, um, they, they would see sense and they'd, they'd move to the coalition. Uh, <laughs> I, I just don't know that that trend um, is still existing today. And I think that reflects basically a change in the way in which uh, Australians are thinking. Um, now, does that mean that the Liberal Party is consigned to history? I don't think so, because I think that essentially that demographic, that younger de demographic, um, can and should be very attracted to many of our economic messages, our support, the support for aspiration, uh, things like their, their natural desire to be able to afford to get into home ownership, uh, things like uh, our personal income tax plan, which have been criticised in some quarters. I found from my own personal experience that uh, I was getting very positive feedback about that from uh, from constituents who were in the under under forty age groups um, who wanted to say as their income grew to to not be not to be penalised to the degree that the tax system was. Uh, but where I think that we've missed them is is on other issues, and I'd say climate change is an example of that. Uh, today, the voice is an example of that. Support for the voice in the public polls is running at close to seventy percent in under thirty fives, uh, and uh, even um, even though something that happened under our government, uh, something like marriage equality really uh, unified and motivated younger voters. And uh, whilst obviously that happened with the support of a Liberal Prime Minister and Liberals like me, uh, there was a perception that resistance to a change which was considered to be a no-brainer was coming from 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 elements of the Liberal Party or the coalition. And, and it was. I mean, you know, in a sense, the party was dragged kicking and screaming to that uh, to that uh, postal survey as it eventually emerged. And there was, you know, a fair, fair amount of umbrage about even having that survey when it was open to the parliament to make the change. I, um, as you may recall, uh, wrote at the time that 
funnily enough, that probably cemented the change, gave it much stronger legitimacy that it ended up having uh, that process, uh, even though many people found it offensive and stressful and thought it was deeply mm. flawed. But nonetheless, I think the fact that there was such a strong vote for it when that postal survey did occur uh, really made it impossible for any future party of either side really to say, oh, well, you know, we don't think there's public support for this, which may not have been the case with a simple parliamentary vote, you know, with the standard two or three three vote majority out of the House of Representatives. But, you know, just just quickly on those issues you mentioned, things like women, the, the treatment of women and the role of women and where women are electorally now, professional women in particular, moving away from the Liberal Party, its position on climate, which has not got any better, uh, even after an, losing an election where it was such a key feature. Corruption and integrity, well, I think there's there's been some progress on that. But there's been, you know, considerable attachment to... Uh, culture war fights um, continuing. Uh, yes, it's no longer on same-sex marriage, but it's moved on to a whole sort of heated argument about transgender rights and 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 so forth. It it just feels like where the Liberal Party needs stronger moderates to sort of help it make this adjustment, and that and they're not there. Uh, well, I disagree with that, Mark, and and obviously that was one of the byproducts of the of the the teal wave that we saw. But but you know, I I do think so. We have so an was that you disagree with happens. it, or you, you you disagree or you agree? Because as you say, a, a good many moderates were wiped out in the teal wave, right? So Correct. I suppose what yeah. I'm saying is, in the parliamentary party, I mean, we've seen Julian Lisa take that very principled stand. We've seen a mm-hmm. number of moderates outside the party, including yourself, strongly in favour of the yes vote. But you know, there's, 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 there just isn't an engine room of any real significance inside the party anymore for, for, for making this change. And so we see the, the parties move strongly to this no position just before we started recording this conversation. As I, as I mentioned before, Peter Dutton's announced a reshuffle. Karen Andrews is gone uh, from the front bench. She's decided to leave the parliament at the next election. A number of conservatives have been elevated. Uh, the leading no a national Jacinda Namagimpa Price is is now in that uh, Indigenous Affairs portfolio, and I think these young voters are going to be looking at all of these things and say, "Well, where's the evidence that this party is even wanting to speak to us?" Well, I think the contrast is, and the demonstration of what happens when that that alternative is presented, is what is happening at the state level uh, in yes. many states within the Liberal Party and New South Wales. Obviously, I know best, but I think it's also where there's the most dramatic indication of that. And it seems odd talking about it in these terms, having just lost the New South Wales election. But the reality is, is that there were a whole range of factors that went to that loss, uh, particularly, I think, just longevity and, and time for a change. But but what is most uh, pronounced about that election result is the fact that a whole range of seats that were under attack from Teal independence, Liberal seats were under attack from Teal independence, uh, stayed Liberal. And... Uh, these are areas that fell dramatically to independence at the federal election, but they didn't at the state level in New South Wales. And there is an obvious reason for that. Under Berejiklian and Perrottet, arguably dead and O'Farrell before them, you had a very centrist state government. Uh, you had a government that was focused on issues like female participation in the workforce, major reforms to the extent that state governments can do it, to uh, childcare arrangements, for example, for a kindergarten for 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 kids, that type of thing, uh, but also most obviously uh, their support for strong climate action. So you had New South Wales rated by 
worldwide fund for nature as having the best policies for renewable energy, for example. And it is those policies that I think led to us holding what we consider to be our heartland. Uh, now, people will say, well, there are still significant swings. Uh, and one of the challenges, I think, for our state parliamentary teams is the perceptions about the Liberal Party, the Liberal brand, no matter what happens in state capitals, is largely determined by what people see happening out of Canberra. Uh, and I hope that we reach the point that we recognise that the the approach that Aperite or Aberiglian brought to New South Wales is what we need in Canberra if we're going to reflect modern Australia and politically have any chance of winning an election. I mean, you know, the 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 party's in a really difficult spot, right? Because as a result of that teal wave, like a lot of contra voices in the federal parliamentary party room are missing now, and so you know, that's that's reflected in the, the, the sort of things that Mark kind of just mentioned. And I guess I wonder, this is a really unfair question, Trent, so just gird yourself. But I mean, like, I wonder if if ultimately it will be too difficult to recapture that ground federally and that a sort of different party vehicle, a much a, a three-party coalition might be a more viable option. I mean, I know that um, states select candidates and they control great deals of resources. And so there's definitely a party a pathway back, but there is definitely some asymmetric challenges there. Look, I, I honestly don't think the third party option's likely to arise anytime soon. And uh, I intend to uh, stick with the party I've been a member of since I was 17 years old and, and keep keep fighting uh, for the type of vision I have for our country and for our party. Will you contest uh, the – sorry to interrupt, uh, Trent, but will you be uh, seeking to re-enter the federal parliament at the next election? Highly unlikely. <laughs> I've moved on <laughs> to a large degree. I miss, I miss the job. I love my job as an MP, but uh, but um, I, ha- I had my shot is the way that I look at it. You never say never, but, uh, but I'd be – be very surprised if I did so. But look, I think um, we're at a point where those election results have, have you've, you're right, taken out um, the moderate voice from the federal parliamentary party. Um, the one thing that gives me hope is, is that uh, at the end of the day, for any political leadership in any political party, uh, electoral prospects do eventually have a huge influence on what you do. And, uh, and I think that there'll be a point where the party has to realise, there are some that won't, but uh, the party itself, the leadership itself, will have to realise that it needs to change tack on a couple of these issues. And and you mentioned them, Mark. I mean, I think what Peter Dutton did in relation to working with the Government on the Integrity Commission was very positive. The support that Dutton's leadership gave to childcare reforms was very important. But I think the big missing gap at the moment is, is moving uh, on climate change, uh, which is in electorates like the one I represented, always the number one issue. Um, and uh, we just haven't done anything to demonstrate to voters yet that we've listened to their concerns about climate change, and that's what we really have to do. But, and, but and I think, the voice. And, I, and I, I met him after the election, but I think David Cameron's pathway in the UK provides an interesting and relevant model uh, for us. Uh, Cameron took over the Tories after they'd been out of office for a decade. They tried various leaders. They tried a far more conservative approach. When he came in, he basically very quickly neutralised climate. In fact, arguably had stronger climate policies than than, uh, than the Labor government. Uh, but the other thing which he did, which I think is also an important part of this equation, is he transformed the Tory party in terms of uh, how it represents modern Britain. And he personally drove the drive uh, for more people of different uh, ethnic backgrounds and more women. And the results of that you see today, uh, the fact that you've got 
I think, I think, um, don't hold me to this, but four out of five of the most senior officers of the state of state in Britain under a Tory government held by people of, uh, of Asian or, or African heritage uh, is one of David Cameron's legacies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, he provides there's... A, he, he provides a model, really. Just quickly on that, did he? I don't recall this, but did he suffer the sort of arguments against him that he was make turning the the Tories into Labor light? Because that is the sort of charge that always comes from the right and from the right wing press mm. in this country. Well, well, I mean, like they had um, they'd gone through like I think three leaders by then and and lost, kept losing. So yeah, of course he did face some dimensions of that. But I think what is what is an important difference is that. You know, the, the Conservatives in the UK is a highly centralised party and so if Cameron says jump, everyone goes, okay. And the, the challenge that the Federal Liberal Party has is Dutton might say jump and New South Wales might say, nah, we're our own party, we're going to do what, our, what we like. And yeah. and mm-hmm. that might be the thing that ultimately leads to, to this renaissance. We, we still have a strongly two-party system. Um, time and a Messiah leader has worked in the past and may well work in the future. So that's interesting, Trent. What what Maria is saying there, I suppose, goes to to your point to a, to an extent, which is that if there is going to be this um, this this rebuilding, this return to you know competitiveness, that it may actually come up through the states rather because of that federal structure. It almost has to because unless it's going to be driven by a charismatic federal leader, and I think it's fair to say that that's not going to happen under the current one. And I'm not having a crack at his charisma. Um, I'll leave people to make their own judgment about that, but more th- more the point about he's not a moderate, right? And he's not leading, proposing to drive the Liberal Party back toward the centre. So perhaps it has to come uh, from, from the states. We see much more moderate leaders of the Liberal Party all around the country. I think every Premier, including um, the, the current Liberal Premier of Tasmania and, and the last Liberal Premier somewhere else. I'm just trying to remember where it was. But, uh, you know, we're, we're in fact pro-voice. So it's... Uh, th- there's well, Don Perrottet. Yeah. Don yes. Perrottet, that's who yeah. it was, yes. Um, and uh, it's, um, yes, we see, I suppose, government uh, closer to the ground. What I wanted to ask you, Trent, though, is it, it's a, I suppose this is a, a long-term complaint that we hear about the moderates, which is that they do a lot of sort of talking, but there's not they don't sort of end up with a lot of results now i know that's easy to say against a group that usually doesn't have the numbers to actually you know drive outcomes all the time but i'm wondering at what point does this fight have to be had and if if not now when i mean the surely the time to have that big values fight within the federal liberal party is right now when you're in opposition rather than tearing a government apart uh, you know whilst you're trying to govern the country and there's some clear issues there. You've listed them out. There's the climate issue and there's the voice. Uh, we, 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 Simon Birmingham has made clear his support for the voice. He's a, a, a leading moderate. And yet at the same time, he's not going to step down from his position. His position remains quite sort of ambiguous, a foot in each camp really. And no one really expected that he would because that is that has been the history of the moderates uh, to – you know, gesture in the right direction to seem a bit more centrist than than the rest of the party, but in the end, to toe the line. Yeah, it's a really important issue, and I'd say two things. Firstly, I think historically moderates, and this was certainly my approach, um, have um, resiled against those that have sought to, uh, I think, fundamentally undermine the the party's prospects through 
through outwardly divisive tactics. Um, the type of things that we saw where we had two senators, for example, in the last years of the Morrison government <laughs> threatening to boycott votes in the Senate uh, if they didn't get their way on policy issues. Uh, and I think moderates have always tried to be the, the grown-ups in the room on some of those things. Uh, but I think there are lessons for the moderates about how uh, willing they are to pursue issues um, more aggressively within the party organisation, but also occasionally within the parliament. Um, and uh, that's certainly a lesson for me from the last election. Uh, obviously, we do it in every uh, available channel that we have. Uh, uh, and and certainly that's something we were doing in the party room. And I think moderates did have some success in, in the last federal parliament. I don't think we would have got the 2050 net zero commitment, for exactly. example, without the work that we collectively did. I certainly don't think that we would have got marriage equality if it hadn't been for the group of us that were willing to take it to the to the wire, um, and there's a whole range of other other issues where that's where that's come to the fore. But uh, but should the moderates be more aggressive about their positioning? I think that's right, and I think that uh, um, the challenge always is in this environment is is that Liberal Party generally hands opposition periods very badly. And it keeps us in opposition for a long time. And I think about the Howard Peacock years, for example, which sadly I'm old enough to remember. Uh, so, so it is such a difficult balancing act. Uh, but this this really is it goes to both the heart of the party and its soul, but also uh, to our electoral pro uh, prospects. Now, I'm not someone that believes that moderate should prevail uh, because. Um, in a in a complete sense, because I do think the Liberal Party is the strongest when it's got the balance between Liberals and Conservatives right. We seek to represent a, a broad spectrum of the centre-right spectrum. Uh, but at the moment, I don't think that balance is there, and that's the challenge. I should say a shout-out here to Bridget Archer and Andrew Bragg, uh, the New South Wales Senator, and Bridget Archer, the member for Bass in Tasmania federally, um, both been very outspoken on The Voice and on some other issues. Bridget Archer's crossed the floor a number of times. There have been people who've been prepared to, I think, take take on damage to their career prospects to pursue issues, and, and, and that they, they ought to be recognised. And, and as you say, Trent, a number of... Um, and moderates are very influential in the same-sex marriage, pushing that through. And quite clearly, Abbott didn't want to take it anywhere. It ended up, mm. you know, happening under Turnbull. But the progress toward it, a lot of the hard fight, as you would know, as you were part of, was was done while Abbott was there, and Abbott was no friend of the issue. Um, so, and, you know, and even well before that, I, I particularly yeah. should give a shout out to Warren Inch, who was almost yes. a sole voice. So yes, <laughs> he was arguing for marriage equality during that awkward pe period where Petty Wong was voting no. <laughs> so, yeah. but, uh, so he's he was the real trooper and stayer on this issue. Yes, interesting, isn't it? Queenslanders' role in this. I mean, you, you can talk about Bill Hayden, for example, who's still alive, former Labor leader, up until uh, Bob Hawke displaced him just before that eighty-three election. Uh, Bill Hayden was pursuing homosexual law reform in the in the AWU run uh, Queensland branch of the Labor Party in 1967 and 68, and and mm. taking on a lot of damage for it, um, a lot of uh, well, when I say damage, taking on a lot of argument. Uh, uh, the, the, a lot of these fights happen, I suppose, behind closed doors, and uh, it must be frustrating when you can't take those matters public. You might be fighting the fight, but not really not really getting a lot of public credit for it because at the same time you're trying to keep the, the peloton of government tight or peloton of the party mm. tight, yeah. 
Peloton, a great word. I'll, I'll, I'll use that in my next uh, <laughs> next piece. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, it's been really good talking to you, Trent. Uh, really, really enjoyed this conversation. And um, I think, you know, people will have seen a, a, a different perspective to an issue that gets gets ventilated a lot. People, you know, voters are frustrated about what they do see and don't see in, in politics. But uh, it's um, the practice of it is a um, complicated business, let's say. There are competing... Uh, um, imperatives and uh, issues, uh, long-term and short-term considerations and the like. So um, thanks for taking us into that world a bit. Yeah, thanks for answering our unfair questions. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. All the very best to you. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. I will just say again that we have a uh, an email address, democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Um, so if you want to send us an email and give us any feedback, uh, feel free to do so. Unless it's hostile, we'll probably get back to you. Well, some of you, you many many of you have sent emails and I, I hope we're re- managing to reply to them all. And and mostly they've been positive. Yes, they have. Yeah. It's, it's really terrific. And, um, you know, if you've got any ideas about things you'd like us to do, then we're, we're, we're all ears or all eyes or whatever it is with an email. That's it for now. Talk again next week. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.